Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Olia, and if I was in a balancing act on a tightrope, the dangerous object I would have below me to make my act more exciting would probably be boiling wax, so then if I fell, I could still make money as an entertainer in a wax museum. <laughs> I'm Caitlin, and if I were balancing on a tightrope, I think I would probably just want, like, a mixture of, like, clowns and maybe some crocodiles because both of them are terrifying and maybe worse than the tightrope act so yeah that's what i would walk over i'm Kristen, and if i were balancing on a tightrope all i could think about when i saw this question was that scene in avatar where uh, zula makes tai lee beyond the rope while it's like on fire and there's no nets and there are a bunch of animals running wild (laughs) and that would be my tightrope act epic i love that (laughs) As long as you get to be tiny. Exactly. She's cool, right? You would need her skills. Well, hi, I'm Sarah B. Larson, and if I were balancing on a tightrope, what dangerous object would I want below me? This is funny because I actually asked my son this question, and he said the exact same answer as me. So I'm like, you are my son, aren't you? And that is a huge aquarium water tank, whatever, with sharks. Ooh, I like it. (laughs) Then if you fall in, you can, like... Go look yeah, at the sharks because sharks You can are cool. swim with the sharks, which is, you know, a dream of mine. So, Oh, very nice. <laughs> so you, like, would try to yeah. fall off. You'd, like, go up with your yeah, scuba gear sure. and be like, oops, I have to go swim oh, with the sharks oh, 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 I fell. So everybody else would be nervous. <laughs> but <laughs> they react. They just didn't know. Very exciting. So a big welcome to Sarah B. Larson, the author of the Defy Trilogy, the Dark Breaks the Dawn duology, and the Sisters of Shadow and Light duology. And book two just came out. Very excited for that. Sarah, can you take a minute to tell us about your books? Yes. So as you said, I do have three series out. So just to briefly touch on the first two, um, the Defy Trilogy is about a girl disguised as a boy. She's the personal guard to a prince who she hates. It's set in the jungle. There's lots of magic and sword fighting and people that are hiding secrets and kissing. So that's a fun one. (laughs) Um, The Dark Breaks the Dawn duology is a gender-swapped fantasy reimagining of Swan Lake. So it was inspired by my love of the music of Swan Lake and some of the story, but I did um, kind of turn it into my own story with some of the elements of Swan Lake, but it's not like a straight up retelling or anything. So don't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> and Sisters of Shadow and Light, my most recent duology, like you mentioned, the, the second and final book, Warriors of Wing and Flame, just came out last week, which is fantastic and also terrible because the world is on fire. But hey, my book came out <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so... Look away from the fire yes, and read yes, the book. It's a great distraction. It will help take <laughs> you away from the world for a while. It's about two sisters that are trapped behind a sentient hedge in an abandoned citadel with their emotionally broken mother. And the older sister feels extremely responsible for her younger sister, who was born with the power of the paladin, which gives her glowing eyes but also makes her incapable of communicating because the same night she was born is the night that her father abandoned them and disappeared. And he is the one that had the power that was gifted to her. So she has nobody that has taught her how to use it. So it has basically taken over her mind and she can't really communicate except on rare occasions when she somehow accesses her power and uses it. So they're kind of stuck there until the day that the hedge lets a boy through who just happens to be an expert on the paladin and helps them unlock the secrets to their world and starts changing everything. So, and then the sequel is the sequel, which would be lots of spoilers. So yeah. 
It's <laughs> very exciting. Yeah. So listeners, be sure you check that out. Um, today we are talking about everyone's favorite topic, romance. But um, we're going to talk about bouncing romance and plot in YA. We just did a similar discussion with Amina May Safi, who writes YA contemporary rom-coms. So we wanted to get a take from a fantasy author. Sarah, we're so glad to have you here. We're excited to pick your brain. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So to get us started, um, let's go with this question. It seems like most YA books, regardless of genre, have romantic subplots these days. Why do you think that is? Is it necessary for the age group? So I don't think it's necessary. I mean, you can certainly write a book that doesn't have romance in it and have it be an excellent and well-written and interesting book, maybe. But in my opinion, <laughs> there needs to be at least a little bit of romance because I think it's unrealistic to think that any character would not have the desire to be loved because I think that's a basic human need. I mean, I guess maybe if you're writing a robot, then maybe, but that wouldn't really be fantasy. That'd be sci-fi. So, but you know what I'm saying? Just <laughs> we can have this conversation with a sci-fi author next. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> like, do cyborgs need to have romance? I don't know. But I just feel like romance is part of our lives. It's part of what we yearn for and seek after. And it's a huge part of figuring out who you are and what you want in life and so much of growing up is finding and finding people and falling in love. And so I think when you try to eliminate that entirely from a story, it takes away some of the realistic aspects, especially when you're in fantasy. There's so many things that are unrealistic that by having a romantic subplot, it brings some realism back into the story. It makes your characters more attainable and relatable because whether you're in, you know, this other world with griffins flying around and people who can basically shoot like balls of lightning fire out of their hands. That's not so relatable, but you can relate to falling in love with the guy who can has like glowing blue eyes and can shoot fire out of his hand that rides the griffin, right? Like maybe your guy doesn't do all that, but you can relate to the feeling of falling in love with him. <laughs> so that brings like this, this ability to relate a little bit with these characters that are in completely fantastical situations with your readers, if that makes sense. And yes, that was in reference to Sisters of Shadow and Light. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I think that it really helps expand readership too, because I mean, you have different groups of people who read books for different things. And it's, I'm thinking about this from a, a purely like strategic sort of way rather than a realistic way. But it seems like um, a lot of teenagers like reading about that kind of stuff, at least. I mean, girls and guys probably too, more girls than guys. But it seems like you can rope people in with one part of the genre, like if you have cool dragons and fantasy and whatever, but, and then you can rope in some other readers with some romance and maybe that's just trying to kitchen sink a novel, but I kind of think about it that way. <laughs> so I guess the question is with fantasy, you have an, a ton of extra ground that you have to make up because in the straight contemporary, you have to do world building, but people are usually pretty familiar with the world that you're in. Um, but when it comes to fantasy, you have to get like basic information on the page to move the plot forward and you're sort of cramming it into a relatively small word count. So when it comes to like your romance subplots, how do you make sure to give enough time to the romance to make it feel earned at the end? Or is it even important to make it feel earned? So I was thinking about this and I think that's a complicated question and it really depends on what type of world you are building and what kind of romance you're or what romantic tropes you're incorporating 
I was trying to think through like examples of people that had done it really well and how quickly the romance was introduced and how fully it was explored. I feel like in books where it's done really well, the romance, whether it's a subplot, a very minor part of the story or a very major part of the story, really just feels very organic and natural. And that makes it makes room for itself, if that makes sense at all. When when it just feels right for these characters to be falling in love or to be having this forbidden attraction or whichever way you come at it, you don't have to really force a lot of extra room into your plot and your writing to fit it in because it's just a natural course of what should be happening between those characters. And obviously, yes, you do have a lot more world building and whatnot in fantasy, but I'm also a big proponent of not overly detailing your readers with your world building. So if you have so much world building in your book that there's no room to write romantic scenes or whatever, then that's probably the bigger problem is that you have too much detail from your world building (laughs) than that there's not room for your romance, if that makes sense. Just there's so many things when we're building these worlds that we want to include in our books to like prove that we did it, right? Like, but I have these pages of notes. I need to let my readers know that I know all these things, but it might not really be integral to the story. And so therefore it doesn't need to be on the page and taking up space that could be used for better means for character building and character arcs and even the, you know, the forward motion of the plot. Um, I don't know. Do you guys agree with me or do you think I'm like off in left field? <laughs> I 100% agree. Um, romance is, is my favorite subplot. So if there's not room for that, it's not really my kind of book. <laughs> I agree. I think that I write really complicated, really world-building heavy books, and I tend to also – I'm actually, the reason I keep pushing this topic at writers is I'm like, I want to learn how to write romance better. That's the benefit of having a podcast where you invite people over to talk about how to write better. I'm like, I would like to learn how to write this better, so please tell me how you do Well, it. I think it's interesting to have me and you on here because you do write more plot-heavy, world-building heavy books with, you know, the romance is definitely more of a minor subplot, and mine – I mean, obviously, I have the world building and stuff, but the romantic subplot tends to be play a bigger role in my books than in yours. And so it's kind of interesting to have those two sides of the coin. I think it's good for us to be having this conversation because we write similar but different. So, Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, a very large spectrum of what YA is and what it emphasizes because... I I do tend to write longer, more complicated, more world building heavy books where you have to remember a lot of details. And like, so this is a bigger problem for me where I'm like, you have to remember about the the dragon and, and the brick that she found and this and that, you know, it, it takes a lot of, of page to do that because the plot is complicated, which I'm working on fixing that. I'm trying to become a better writer. (laughs) Um, writer. But at the same, (laughs) thanks. See, I'm just fishing. (laughs) Um, But the, I, I have been trying to incorporate romance more into my books, and I found that the more the plot either forces characters who don't like each other together or forces two characters who do like each other apart, the more natural the romance feels to the plot because it is definitely a part of it, and it doesn't work without the romance. What do you guys think about that? I would think I would agree. I actually feel like I'm probably middle of the road here because while I love a good romantic book, I'm also really happy with books that focus on other kinds of relationships um, as the primary focus. And so like I was thinking of the Winners trilogy, which obviously the romance propels like everything there. And I'm reading it for the romance, even though I like all the politics, but I'm reading because I want Arne and Kestrel to end up together. There are also books like the Bartimaeus trilogy where 
a character has a crush on another character, but it's mostly about the friendship of like really opposing forces. And I think that book is totally middle grade. though. Is it though? Because I don't know that it is. <laughs> I totally get sold as middle grade, but Jonathan Stroud's definitely straddles yeah, the line pretty bad. But also I feel like there are other books that do sort of similar things where it's focusing more on getting people to be friends with each other, or overcome ideologies than necessarily on romance. And I'm there for that, but that's probably not at all what we're talking about here. Well, it's interesting actually, because if, well, I, actually, think, if I think about oh, it, I'm like, I don't know that I can think of very many examples of young adult, like strictly young adult mm-hmm. and fantasy or otherwise that doesn't have at least a minor romantic subplot. I, I'm not sure that I can think of any examples that don't have something so maybe maybe we can open that up to the wider question. What are some strategies for making a romantic arc feel important to the plot, if that's something you want to do in your novel? Well, I think you guys kind of nailed it on the head when you were talking about that it needs to be propelling the plot forward. It needs to be integral to your character's arc and their growth and their meeting their goals or not meeting their goals, whatever is going to happen in your plot. The romance has to complement or complicate that for it to be effective that's a great way to put it yeah well I mean romance has to be fun because either the characters don't want to get together but you want them to get together or they want to get together but there's something in the way and if your plot is what provides one of those things depending on how your characters know each other. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think if it's a if it's a worthwhile romance, then it will be changing your main character and it will be changing the other characters. Even if it doesn't work out, they'll still be changed. And kind of that's the core of a story, right? We want to see where the character goes from the beginning and where they end up at the end. Yeah, exactly. I also think that this is where uh, enemies to lovers as a trope come, becomes uh, really useful just in terms of moving a plot forward because if they're disagreeing with each other over something really major and that leads them to make decisions that causes problems, then you've got a really well-entwined romance with your plot. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of different tropes that can work really well with all of that. I love enemies to lovers, but there's other ones too, like... You know, the interesting thing with the Sisters of Shadow and Light duology is that there is a lot of romance in it, and the romance deeply changes the main characters and 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 helps them figure out like who they are and what they really want in life. But the bigger relationship in the book is actually between the sisters and how much they love each other and their bond with each other. And that was actually my impetus for writing the book is because I am the oldest of five girls and I wanted to write a book that was about that bond that can exist between sisters. I know it's not always like that, but whether it's your biological sisters or found sisters, you know, I just feel like women need each other and we all need to have at least that one other person that we can turn to, you know, that, that understands us wild creatures that we are. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) so it is interesting the differences that you look in the relationships between characters and books, like one of my favorite examples of enemies to lovers is uh, the cruel prince trilogy. Mm-hmm. That one was so well mm-hmm. done. And both of those characters are like deeply flawed, but also deeply amazing. <laughs> and you just like, mm-hmm. and them together, it just brought them to whole new levels. And, but you look at their relationships with their family members and it was the opposite of what's happening in my book, which is that their family relationships were toxic, right? And so 
for them, they went from enemies to lovers because they needed each other to overcome all the toxicity in their family lives. So there's just so many different dynamics that you can take and look at friends, family, romance, all of that, that should all play into each other because that is life. Well, I actually really like what you just said because I feel like Having um, really deep relationships in a book that either complement or put into sharp relief the romance that's happening, it makes it so much deeper because there's so much more context for why a character is acting the way that they are, why they make the decisions that they do, because you've seen them with their sister or their mother or their father or whatever else. And so watching them react to a new person who they're developing a new relationship with, um, it has it can have so many other ramifications because they're like, well, I mean, they were betrayed by their sister, so they have a hard time trusting people or their parents are perfect and wonderful and they're not perfect and wonderful. So they're worried about being judged all the time. Or, I mean, there's just so many ways that you can either complicate or make something better or, or feel resolved about a character based on one relationship versus another one. So we talked a little bit about tropes. Um, are there any other ones that you really love to use or ones that are way overdone? Or is there such a thing as tropes being overdone, Sarah? I mean, I have used a few different tropes in my writing. I did do Enemies to Lovers and Dark Breaks the Dawn duology. Um, although that, I guess that's kind of a spoiler if you haven't read it because that doesn't really come into play until the sequel. But um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> if people haven't read it by now, I don't know. Like Maybe that'll make them want to read it. <laughs> Um, even in the Defy trilogy, like, technically it's enemies to lovers because she thinks they're enemies, even though he doesn't, but she thinks he does. I don't know, whatever. And then in Sisters of Shadow and Light, it's, I don't even know how to describe that one. That's like a Rapunzel complex or like Anna <laughs> from Frozen or something because <laughs> these girls have lived a super isolated life and, um... Have any of you guys seen that meme that's been going around ever since quarantine started that was like, y'all were judging Anna for falling in love two seconds after she got out of the castle, but she was locked in there for like her whole life and you guys have only been locked away for a month and you're ready to just like marry the next person you see, aren't you? You know, like, <laughs> Yeah. It was like, you know, like give you a little more empathy. And I was kind of glad in a way. I mean, not ever for quarantine, but I mean, you know, but the, it kind of made people relate better to my characters. Like maybe... <laughs> Because Zura, the older sister, she thinks that she falls in love pretty fast. And I mean, this is a spoiler, but sorry. But she figures out that she doesn't actually love that person. But it was just the first boy she's ever met. And so she's just like, well, I guess then this must be what it is, right? Because I'm 18 and I've never met a boy before. So so I don't really know what trope that would be. Like I said, maybe a Rapunzel complex. I'm not sure. But um, I don't think that... Well, that sounds like a yeah, good name for it. I don't know. Or on a complex, so maybe. I don't know. But I don't think that tropes can be overdone if they're done well. But when they're used to try and hide... What is... What are the words I'm... I'm trying to think how to put this nicely. When you try to use a trope to cover up the fact that your characters are lacking or that the relationship is lacking, mm -hmm. or that your plot is lacking, then that's when it falls flat and it feels overdone because then it just feels forced. So that's why, like, The Cruel Prince, like, Enemies to Lovers is one of probably the most sought-after tropes to do. But here she took and did it so well that... I don't know if I've met one person that doesn't love that trilogy. So 
if you do it well, it's not overdone. But if you don't do it well, then it is. That kind of sucks, but that's the truth. (laughs) We're about out of time for this portion of the podcast. Does anybody have any final notes before we move on? All right, we'll go ahead and move on to the next portion of the podcast where we critique a listener submission. Quick review of how we critique. We try to keep these non-prescriptive, but if you'd like to see the submission for yourself along with all of our notes, you can view it on litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. And if you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can also find our submission guidelines there. A summary of this week's chapter. A young woman with terrifying time control powers accidentally uses her abilities and saves her own life. What are some things we liked about this submission? So I felt like the first line definitely was kind of a shocker. Um, Should I just read it, I guess? Yeah, go for it. So the first line was, she saw a five-year-old boy grow into a 90-year-old man and die within the span of 10 seconds. And obviously, you want to grasp your reader right from the start. And that definitely, like, grasped my attention, like, I had to reread it like twice. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> what does, does that mean what I think that meant? Um, I really liked the relationship between the sisters. Um, obviously, I'm partial to books that have a sister relationship. Oh, me too. I, I totally commented on that as well. I, I think anything that focuses on that particular relationship is great. And I'm excited to see how Lowen and Lou are going to interact with each other more in this. Yeah, definitely. Um, I felt like there was some interesting world building going on here. There was like this weird juxtaposition of like a world that felt familiar and then like random insertions of things that were totally not familiar, like the cat thing um, that was not really a cat. <laughs> and um, and obviously the, the magic, whatever is going on with her abilities, that was interesting. I agree. Time control powers is not something that's overused in my opinion. So I was really excited to see the twist on these and excited to see how she used them. Um, kind of what the time control let her do. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, I also really liked some of the fun side relationship things going on. Like they have this fun relationship with their doorman where as they leave, he's like, don't forget to say hi to this baker you're going to see because he has a crush on her and they don't forget. And it just, it's fun to see all of the different characters all laced together. It's not isolated incidences. Yeah. It's everybody's It felt like she had a good grasp or he, I don't actually know if this author is male or female. This author had a good grasp on the characters that, that this author knows the characters and that there are relationships that are already established when we start into the story. What are some things that might need a second look? Well, going back to that first sentence, um, the fact that I did have to read it twice is actually maybe not the best thing. And I really felt like I'm not sure if that's the best place to start your story because it ends up being a dream sequence. At least that's what we are led to believe, whether it's a flashback or a dream, I'm not sure, but we're led to believe it's a dream sequence. And... um. I just, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that most agents and editors look at that as very cliched to start with waking up from a dream. And um, I just actually feel like it would be a much stronger start to have them start with just like leaving the apartment and interacting with the bellman and going to the cafe and then having the incident at the end of this chapter just be kind of the first time that we see that she has abilities. Because honestly, the nightmare 
Like it really didn't mean anything to me. It was more confusing than anything for me to have that be the first paragraph that I read in the book. I don't know if you guys agree, but. I agree completely. Um, I think the issue with dream sequences or traumatic flashbacks is that you're introducing a character in a moment where they're not acting anything like themselves. And so it's really hard to A, care because we don't know the character, B, know who the character is because they're in a really intense moment. And then you're sort of dropped off in this like ungrounded um, beginning where there's just not a good grasp of setting or how it's supposed to relate to what's actually happening once the character wakes up. So I, I think it's fair to say that most agents and editors would caution against dream sequences as openings. Well, and about the opening, that was one of the biggest things that I I had a hard time with as I was reading is we started with this setting where we know she uses her magical power to turn somebody from two to 90 in a second and then die and that he's looking at her and then he knows that she did it as a two-year-old and then we wake up and she's screaming and her little sister is with her and there's a very sweet scene between the two of them where she hugs her until she goes back to sleep as if her little sister was the one who was screaming but I for some reason because we didn't get any grounding detail about the world they live in I thought we were in high fantasy land and we're not, because in the very next scene, we have an apartment building and car keys and a baker and a city. And I was like, oh, wait, we were just on a dock before. Like, I thought that we had, like, crazy power going on. And, and so I just assumed high fantasy. And did any of you guys have that experience? Yeah, I'll actually second that. Um, Chris was shaking her head, but I, I did. I was surprised to find out it was in a modern setting. I think I think the problem is that... Your reader assumes things, whether or not you want them to. And so it sounds like Aaliyah and I assumed one thing. And Kristen, I don't know about you, Sarah, assumed something else. I didn't else. assume that it was and high fantasy because it just wasn't... because she did say that he was throwing pebbles at a bird on the fence in a park. So that did make me feel like it was our world somewhere. But I didn't know me if too. it was past or present or, you know, I, yeah. I think... Yeah, if without like the specific, there are apartment buildings yeah. and skyscrapers and stuff like that. Um, I just assumed one thing, and then when I found out it was something else, it was quite mm-hmm. jarring. And so there are plenty of people who probably went straight to park. I mean, there could be, and so they assumed it was a world. But then you'll have people like me who are like, yeah. wait a second. I had a note um, following when she wakes up. So there are a lot of good details in this piece. We get a really good grounding of her apartment and her relationship with her sister. Um, but sometimes it felt like the prose is almost too detailed, like after she wakes up and she goes into the bathroom and she looks at herself in the mirror, um, and then later when she's walking to the bakery. Um, some of the descriptions felt so play-by-play play that I had a hard time telling what details were important to the actual story. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, another it's another cliche, like, no-no, is to look in the mirror to describe yourself. Um, that's another thing that really kind of a lot of agents will flag as like, oh, this is an amateur writer because those are like two things that they don't want to see is looking in a mirror to see what your character looks like and starting with a dream sequence. So definitely I would find different ways. Like she could easily have this, he or she, again, I keep calling this author a she, but whatever. Um, You could easily have this start with just the sisters interacting in the morning. And like you said, include some detail, but it's kind of what I was refer- referencing earlier. Like when you do world building, it's so tempting to want to put all the details in so that you can prove that you know it, but it doesn't matter. Your your readers don't need to do that. 
And when I've taught world building classes, the biggest thing I try and explain is you need to have your main character be explaining their world through their own eyes, the way they would see it. So if your character lives in this world, they're not going to comment on every little thing that they see and do because it's just natural life to them. I'm not, when I'm like pulling out of my neighborhood and driving my kids to school, I'm not thinking, oh, there's that person's house that does this and that looks like that. And here's this where I turn and there's that tree that I did this one. Blah, blah, blah. Like you don't think through all those details because you're just used to it. You just drive your route. And then that's a stupid example, but there were a lot of extra details that could be trimmed down and she could explain what um, Loan looks like by explaining what Lou looks like and saying, you know, I looked into Lou's green eyes and it reminded me of mother, especially since mine were blue like dad's or, I mean, that's again, a stupid example, but you could do it in that way. Um, and like the, the name, the Rosenberg and the Rose, like there were so many details about that, that I don't think mattered. Like just mention it once and we're good type thing. We're about out of time. Final comments. My only other comment would be about Lowen's powers is that from the opening dream slash flashback, I assumed that Lowen knew that she had powers and had used them before. And then at the end, when she uses them again, she seemed really surprised that she could do it. So I guess I didn't have a good handle on what she thought was possible or, I mean, what she did was really horrible, but I just didn't understand how that fit into her own paradigm of herself and her abilities. We do have other notes that we'll post along with the chapter. So if we missed anything, there's more on there. All right. Well, then, thank you to this author for submitting. We really enjoyed reading your work. And Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, be sure to check out her books. And if you like what you've heard today, please check out our new Patreon page, where you can get bonus content like hot seat critiques and early access and participate in a writing group with Lit Service crew members. It takes a whole team of creatives to make lit service, and patrons help us keep going. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. Thank you to our intern, Lindsay Owens, and thanks to you for listening to Lit Service. We'll see you in two weeks.